0: Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32. Uh, Exodus 32 begins with Moses on Mount Sinai, and by the time we reach Exodus 32 in this narrative through the book of Exodus, Moses has been on the mountain for quite some time. It's actually back in Exodus chapter 24 when he went up the mountain. He'd spend a total of 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. But before he left for this lengthy journey up to the top of Mount Sinai, Moses left some instructions for the people of Israel, he commanded the elders of Israel to wait for him until he returned. Find that in Exodus chapter 24, verse 14. Well, as we will see in our scripture today, this was an instruction that the people of Israel did not follow. And we're going to study all of Exodus chapter 32 this morning, but I want to begin by reading just the first six verses. So look with me, starting in Exodus 32, verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the, an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we read these sobering verses this morning from Exodus chapter 32, we we do pray that we would take heed lest we fall we pray we would use it as an opportunity to fix our eyes on you we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit and through your word this morning we pray this in jesus name amen well friends our world is perhaps more self-obsessed than ever before we are constantly told how important it is that we love ourselves and that we take care of ourselves The beauty industry has now been expanded and rebranded as the self-care industry and it has grown to include a huge range of products and services. The world constantly preaches the message to follow your heart, to do what you are passionate about. Do not let anyone stand in the way of what you want. It is your dreams and your desires that are most important. Your pleasure should be number one. The, the message of, I think, many of our cultures is be zealous or passionate for yourself. Prioritize you. But Friends, is that what we were created for? Is that the path to true joy and satisfaction in life? Well, the answer is, is no. And even modern science. Even secular science has begun to recognize this. David Myers, a a secular, non-Christian psychologist who has spent a lot of time studying the pursuit of happiness and this desire that we have to pursue our own happiness. Well, he concluded this. It seems the more we desire happiness, pursue it, and consume products we hope will help us achieve it, the less happy and more depressed we become. Well, Church, the the reason that is true is we because we were not created to be zealous for our own glory and our own happiness. We were not created to prioritize ourselves. We were created to find satisfaction in the Lord. We were created to worship the Lord. We were created to be zealous for His name and His glory. This is what we find in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, The main idea of Exodus 32, and therefore this sermon is this. God is zealous for His own glory. He is zealous for the glory of His name, and you should be too. God is zealous for the glory of His name, and you should be too. Brothers and sisters, the heart of idolatry is to be zealous for anything else more than the Lord. It is to worship or prioritize anything else above the Lord. It is to trust in anything more than the Lord. It is to find your good or look for your good and your joy and your fulfillment somewhere besides the Lord. It's to look for salvation and protection in something other than the Lord. Well, therefore, this account of Israel's idolatry presents you with a question this morning. What are you zealous for? What are you zealous for? I have four points to the sermon this morning to help us consider that question. You can find that outline in the back of your bulletin. The first is profaning or blaspheming the name of the Lord, profaning the name of the Lord. That's verses one through six. The second is pleading the name of the Lord. That'll be verses seven through 14. The third, protecting the name of the Lord we will be verses 15 through 29. And then finally, preserving the people's name before the Lord. It will be verses 30 through 35. Again, if you didn't get all that down, it's in the back of your bulletin. But first, profaning or, or blaspheming the name of the Lord. But throughout the, the book of Exodus, God has demonstrated to Israel that he loves them and that he is committed to their good. Right, he's rescued them from Egypt by this point. He's provided food and water to them miraculously in the wilderness. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, he entered into covenant relationship with his people, promising his future blessing and care. Well, despite all that God had done for Israel up to this point, despite all that they had seen of his glory and power, despite of these wonderful promises for their future, as soon as Moses was absent for 40 days, Israel turned away from the Lord. And they turned to idolatry. Their faith vanished. Notice there's nothing particularly remarkable about Israel's circumstances here. They are not without food or water, they are not under attack. Nothing seems to be terribly wrong. There is no crisis. They just grew impatient, waiting on Moses to return. Perhaps they grew impatient with the Lord. With Moses gone, perhaps. God seems silent, and they grow a bit worried. Moses had been the spokesman for the Lord to the people. So without him, maybe the Lord seemed silent. They are not sure what Moses was up to, and they were not so sure what, what God was up to. All of the sudden, their problems, for as small as they were, seemed very big, and God seemed very small. They doubted whether God was going to continue to, to care for them. They wanted something to assure them. Something that they could see and and touch, something that was right in front of them. Trusting in God's word and his promises no longer seemed good enough. Didn't seem like a good solution. But brothers and sisters, you cannot have God as your savior if you will not follow him as your Lord. At the heart of Israel's idolatry was that they took their eyes off of the Lord and they placed them on themselves. They only cared about themselves, what they wanted and what they thought that they needed. They looked elsewhere for their protection and salvation. We just need someone or something, anything to go before us. Who cares what God has said? We want something that we can see and touch. But friends, when you take your eyes off of God and... Put them on yourselves and your problems and your circumstances or what you think you want and what you think you need. If that is where your eyes are fixed, idolatry is the natural result. Well, as Israel took their eyes away from the Lord, notice how quickly they were willing to take the glory due to the Lord and give it to other things. Verse one, Israel credits Moses, not the Lord, with bringing them out of Egypt. In verse 4, after the golden calf is created, they say that the golden calf is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, I am not convinced that Aaron or all the people believed that the golden calf was a totally different God from the Lord. I think it's very possible that they believe this is a visible representation of the one true God. We don't have Moses. God and Moses are away on the mountain. We need something we can see and touch. I mean, look at verse 5. After forming the golden calf, Aaron said that they would celebrate a festival to the Lord, not to another God, but to the Lord. But God commanded the people to make no idols of him because it presents a false picture of who he is. It robs him of of glory. Friends, idolatry is not just to say that like this thing over here is God, but it's to say that God is like this something different than how he has revealed himself. What we want, what we want God to be, that is just as much idolatry as to say that thing over there is God. But whether Israel believed that this was another God or just an idol of the true God, the point is the same. Israel did not care about what God had to say. They did not care to obey. They just wanted what they wanted. But friends, to reject God's word is to reject the Lord himself Israel's idolatry was a breaking of the covenant that God made with them it was a profaning of the name of the Lord that God had placed on them it was blasphemy and we see in this text that Israel had distorted or rejected the commands of the Lord in about every way imaginable back in Exodus 20 verse 24 God commanded Israel to build an altar so sacrifices could be made to him. Well here, Aaron commanded Israel to build an altar to sacrifice to the calf instead of the Lord. In Exodus 23, God commanded that Israel celebrate three festivals in his honor every year. Did you notice in our text? Aaron commanded that a festival be instituted for the calf instead. The point is clear. By ceasing to worship the Lord in the way he commanded, They had ceased from worshiping the Lord at all. Friends, obedience and worship, they go hand in hand. Obedience and worship go hand in hand. Christian, let's take time to reflect on our own lives for a moment. How often can your own problems seem very large and God seem very small? How quick can you, too, grow impatient with the Lord to to ask, or to answer your prayers. Maybe you think if the Lord will not fix your problems when you want, then you're just gonna take matters into your own hands. If the Lord will not instantly deliver you from some earthly trouble, then you say, what is the point in following him? How easy it is to lose sight of Jesus' promises and instead place your, your trust and your hope in the things of the earth, things that you can smell and taste and touch and see, whether that's money, the good opinion of others, romantic relationships, community, good health, success, the list goes on. Friends, we can so easily turn these things into idols, the things that we trust in and look for protection and joy and our good in. What will you look at to save you? Where will you look for fulfillment? Church, Jesus calls you to a life of faith, to trust him moment by moment. When life gets tough, will you trust that the Lord is enough? Will you look to things that you can taste and see and touch? Will you trust that the Lord and his promises are enough, even when you cannot understand what he is up to, even when life doesn't seem to make sense? As Christians, we are called to live by faith and not by sight trusting that the lord that has done us good in the past who has saved us and redeemed us continue to give us grace for the future but well, when israel came to aaron demanding an idol well, aaron failed to point the people back to the lord he failed to remind them of god's commands that had told them this is sinful he failed to remind them of god's faithfulness and love that god had demonstrated in so many ways But church, these are the things that we need to be reminded of when doubts creep in. We need to go back to the basics, back to the gospel, remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But instead, Aaron gave in to the demands of the people and made an idol. Now, I think we should give Aaron at least some small measure of grace here. The original Hebrew of these verses suggests that the people did not come to Aaron with a polite request. They came against him like an angry mob, demanding an idol. But just like the people, Aaron refused to believe that God would protect him and care for him if he did the right thing. And he doubted. So Aaron abandoned his, his leadership responsibilities and simply gave the people what they wanted. He compromised. Brothers and sisters, compromising with sin or giving into sin is a losing strategy it always leads to misery and destruction. And yet I think we are so often tempted to compromise with sin, to join in workplace gossip, to feel like we belong, to tell a small lie to keep someone happy or keep their good opinion, to make other small compromises with personal holiness to better fit in with the world, to laugh at a dirty joke so people will like us. And many in the church today argue for compromise with the world on issues like LGBTQ acceptance or other doctrines in order to keep peace with the culture. The church to compromise with sin as a church or an individual simply invites disaster because it profanes the name of the Lord. And the Lord does not tolerate the profaning of his name. That takes us to the second point of the sermon. Pleading the name of the Lord, pleading the name of the Lord. Look with me at verse starting in verse seven. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people. You brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them, and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? turn from your fierce anger and relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, you swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on his people. Brothers, it's, brothers and sisters, it's quite clear in these verses that God does not take sin lightly. Like a judge in a courtroom, God brought an accusation against the people for their idolatry. He accused them of, of turning away from his commands and giving the glory that was due to him, taking the glory that was due to him and, and giving it to another. But friends, God will not give his glory to another. He is zealous for the glory of his name. So God told Moses that he was going to act. God threatened to cut off and destroy the people of Israel and start over with Moses. If they did not want to be his people, if they did not want to follow him, so be it. He would destroy them, and this is exactly what their idolatry deserved. And Now put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. In verse 10, God told Moses that he was going to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. He was going to make... Moses into a great nation. So kids, I've got a question for you. Feel free to shout out the answer. Other than money, other than money, so take money off the table, what do people in the movies always want when they find a genie in the bottle? Power. Power. What else we got? Yeah, I think that's the right answer. They want to be the greatest. They want to be the most powerful. So friends, what would you do if Someone made you the offer that was made to Moses here. Someone came to you and said, hey, I'll make you the shake. I think if we were honest, we would be tempted to say, I like the sound of that Lord. Go for it. That sounds like a good plan. However, this is not what Moses said. And I think we need to notice something important. Unlike Israel, Moses was not primarily concerned with his own good. And he was not primarily concerned with his own glory. He was primarily concerned with the Lord and his glory. Moses had a zeal for the Lord. Notice why he pleaded with God not to destroy the Israelites. It was not out of concern for himself, and it was not even out of love for the people of Israel, though surely he did love the people of Israel. But but Moses was most concerned for the glory and honor of God's name. He had a zeal that God maintained the honor of his name. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moses pleaded with the Lord to turn away his anger so that the Egyptians might not accuse the Lord of being an evil God. Now, what would it look like to Egypt and the other nations if the God who had just done all these miraculous things to bring Israel out of Egypt turned around and destroyed them? Now, make no mistake. That's what Israel deserved. Israel deserved judgment. But if the Lord destroyed Israel, it may lead Egypt and the other nations to believe God was evil and vindictive rather good that rather than good and loving. Moses was concerned that God be known for who he truly is. Friends, I wonder if we have this same concern for God's glory, if we are so concerned with with making his name and his glory known, if we're so concerned with with sharing the gospel and spreading the glory of the name of the Lord if we're so concerned with building up and encouraging the church, the people who carry the name of the Lord. But this is not all. Look at verse 13. Moses also reminded God of his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the promise to make Abraham a great nation. If God destroyed Israel and started over with Moses, he would not be faithful to his promise. But Moses knew God to be a faithful God. And so he pleaded that God act in a manner consistent with his name and character. Brothers and sisters, this is how we should pray too. Biblical prayer is to ask God, to plead with God, to act according to his character. To act according to his name. Biblical prayer is more concerned with God's will being done than our desires being fulfilled. Biblical prayer is concerned with God's glory, not our own. Biblical prayer pleads and rests on the promises of God. It is perfectly a good thing. You should take your problems and concerns before the Lord, but that should not be the entire content of your prayers. In your prayer, take time to take your eyes off your problems and place them on the Lord. Take time to praise him for who he is, to glorify his great name, to thank him for for what he has done. Yet at the same time, take your problems to the Lord and pray boldly. Because the wonderful truth is that God truly does answer prayer. He answered Moses' prayer here, and he answers our prayers as well. For, for some mysterious and wonderful reason that we cannot fully understand, the sovereign God of the universe who can do all things has chosen to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. Why he has done that, we do not know. But God works through the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. He answers prayer. However, even as I say that, I want to be clear that though God does answer prayer, he surely answers prayer. He does not change his mind. Our God is an unchanging God. But if that is true, what does it mean then in verse 14 that God relented of disaster? He relented of the disaster he had announced concerning Israel in response to Moses's prayer. Uh, I think Pastor Ligon Duncan Uh, gives a helpful explanation of this. This is what he writes. Every time this language of God relenting or changing his mind is used in the Old Testament, it is either used to indicate God relenting from punishment, from his punishment to those who have repented, or relenting from his blessing on people who are presumptuous or sinful. In other words, God is constant as a northern star. You can bank on how he is going to respond when people are either presumptuous or repentant. The point is not that we can somehow change the plan of God, but that he is consistent in the way that he deals with us. So friends, if you are put on probation at work for poor performance, what is the message that your company is sending you? Well, they're telling you that you're about to be fired. Well, that is unless you improve your performance. But if you change your ways and improve your performance, and your company decides to keep you as an employee, they're not changing their mind. They're simply being consistent. Well, so it is with God. Moses pled for God's mercy because he knew God to be merciful and compassionate. He knew that God would act according to his character. He prayed not because he thought God was a God who changes, but because he knew he is a God who is constant and unchanging. He would keep his promise. He would show himself to be good and loving. He would show himself to be faithful. God's unchanging character was the foundation of Moses's prayer. We should also see here that God did not relent from destroying Israel because there was anything good in Israel. They didn't go do anything to like somehow make up for their idolatry. No, they were spared because of God's own mercy and his faithfulness to his word of promise for Moses's plea of repentance on their behalf. But church, this should be a great source of hope for you. What we see here should be a great source of hope for you. If God was faithful to answer the prayer of Moses... You can be sure that God will be faithful to answer Jesus's prayer on your behalf. Jesus is our greater mediator who always lives to make intercession for us. In the face of your every sin, in the face of your every compromise, in the face of your every doubt, in the face of your idolatry. There is Jesus before the Father, continually pleading mercy on your behalf. And we know our unchanging God, if we are His, that our unchanging God will be faithful to grant mercy. Not because of what we have done, because of what Jesus has done. God will not change His mind concerning your salvation. This truth that God is unchanging is the bedrock of the Christian faith. It is why we can trust in God. God will not change his mind concerning his word of salvation for you. Even when you sin. Praise be to God. The third point of the sermon then. First is the people profane the name of the Lord. Moses came before the Lord and pled on the basis of the Lord's name. But then third we see that Moses acted to protect The name of the Lord, protecting the name of the Lord. Look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, it is not the sound of of a victory cry and not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Do not be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off and they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughing stock to their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you have been dedicated to the Lord since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Following the big flood last year in Fujairah, the crown prince took a helicopter to, to fly around the emirate to survey the damage. that's because you cannot get a sense of how bad things are how destructive something like a flood is until you see it with your own eyes well so it was for moses god told him what was going on but as he came down the mountain as he came down the mountain seeing it for himself was completely different so as they descended moses and joshua heard singing and witnessed the dancing of the people in front of the golden calf And friends, what you need to understand is that the original Hebrew here strongly suggests that this festival was no ordinary party. Uh, They weren't out there ballroom dancing. This was something closer to an orgy. It was filled with with gross immorality. brothers and sisters, if you continue to cherish the idols of your heart, you will inevitably wander further and further away from the Lord and into greater and greater sin. Idolatry always leads to more sin And more misery. As we see in verse 19, when Moses witnessed the scene, he grew enraged. Brothers and sisters, this was not a sinful anger. This was a righteous anger. He shared the anger of the Lord that the people had profaned the name of the Lord. Moses was a man who was zealous for the glory of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you are zealous for the glory of the Lord, you will grieve when you see his name profane you will not stay silent when a friend mocks the Lord you will grieve and have some level of anger over the sins of society abortion racism senseless killing you'll grieve when you see people offer worship to false gods and brothers and sisters if you are zealous for the name of the Lord you will grieve over your own sin In his anger, Moses destroyed the tablets in which God had written his law, symbolizing that the people had broken the covenant and the law of God. He then completely destroyed the golden calf, grinding it into a powder and forcing the Israelites to drink it. He forced them to taste the bitterness of their own sin, kind of like a parent who might wash out their kid's mouth with soap for using filthy language. And then he confronted Aaron over his sin. My friends, this was leadership. Moses confronted sin instead of condoning sin or compromising with it. Now, of course, Aaron sought to minimize or excuse his own sin in perhaps the most ridiculous way imaginable. But church, before you laugh at Aaron's excuse here that this calf just magically appeared out of the fire, just think how quick you are to minimize or excuse your own sin. I couldn't help it. This person made me do it. Nobody is perfect. Anybody in my situation would do the exact same thing. Friends, when your view of God and his holiness is low, your view of your own sin will be low, too. When you are zealous for his name, you'll grieve over your sin. You'll be quick to confess your sin and to turn from your sin and to turn back to the Lord. But Moses did not just confront Aaron in his sin. He confronted the people of Israel. Look at verse 26. He called all those Israelites who were with the Lord to rally around him. It was like the the scene in the movie where the main character draws a line in the sand with his sword and says, Whoever is with me, cross the line and stand with me. Or the Levites, the tribe of priests, those who were tasked with serving the Lord. Well, they crossed the line and they came to stand with Moses in the Lord. And then they went to put their fellow Israelites to death at the command of the Lord. I think this event, the Levites going throughout the camp, slaughtering their fellow Israelites, can be a difficult event for us to understand. Let me just say a few words about it here for a moment. Back in Exodus 22, 20, God gave this command to the people. Whoever sacrifices to any gods except the Lord alone is to be set apart for destruction. This is a command that the Israelites agreed to follow when they entered into covenant with the Lord. And so this command of the Levites here was consistent with the command that God had given to Israel. If anything, God was merciful that only 3,000 were put to death. I think they were likely the leaders of the rebellion, the leaders of the idolatry. Second, Moses and the Levites here were acting to preserve the honor of the Lord's name. The Levites here were acting like riot police who go into a, a riot to break it up. You know, the guys that have like the helmets and the shields who go into a big riot to break it up. Now look again at verse 25. The people were out of control and they were making themselves a laughingstock with this immoral festival. They were bringing active shame to the Lord and it needed to be stopped. It's not like this party stopped when Moses got back to the camp. It was still going on. So like the riot police, the Levites went into the crowd and put it to a stop. And third, the Levites, we see in verse 29, are commended for this. They're commended for their zeal for the Lord. It seems that in some cases, the Levites even had to put their own family members to death. They are commended for placing the glory of the Lord above all else. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And friends, fourth and finally, if you do find this event troubling, remember that our sense of right and wrong is not to be formed by our own opinions, by God's holy and inerrant word. God defines what is good and right, not us. His ways are higher than your ways, and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But that does lead to the question, then, how should we think about this incident? How should we think about the actions of the Levites here? Well, I love how Alec Mocher puts it in his commentary. He writes this, It is wrong to ask, should we do as they did? So it is wrong to ask, should we do as they did? It is right to ask, Do we feel as they felt? Are we as horrified as they were when we face spiritual disloyalty and an abandonment of divine truth? Is our commitment as firm, realistic, adequate and morally charged as theirs was? Does it appall us that some God other than the Lord should be worshipped or that he should be worshipped in defiance of his word and to the defamation of his character? Do we see and feel sin to be hateful disastrous and deserving of death, a thing to be eradicated from within ourselves and from the community of the Lord's people. No, the Levites do not set us an example of an action to follow, but they do challenge our complacency and our lack of pure indignation and moral outrage. Brothers and sisters, what the Levites did here was not wrong. It was not sinful. We are the church, not the nation, not a nation. It would be wrong for us to act in a similar way. The church is not called to act as the Levites acted. But we are called to be a holy people. Zealous for the name of the Lord. That should lead us to be one, zealous for our own personal holiness. Friends, that should also lead us to be zealous for the holiness of the church as a whole. For the people of God. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus commands that we gently confront our fellow brothers and sisters that we see living in in serious and unrepentant sin. If that person refuses to turn from their sin, the Bible calls us to bring the matter before the church. And if the person unfortunately continues to refuse to repent, to excommunicate them from the fellowship of the church. Well, one of the reasons that the church is called to do this, that Jesus gives this command is to preserve the honor of the name of the Lord. God's people are associated with His name. So it profanes His name when serious sin goes unaddressed in the church. It leads to the church being a laughingstock among the community, like the people of Israel were a laughingstock among the nations. So church, if the process of church discipline or excommunication offends you, you might ask if you share the same zeal for the glory of God's name as Moses and the Levites did. If you're offended that someone might gently point out a pattern of sin that they see in your own life, you might ask if you share the same zeal for the honor of the Lord's name as Moses and the Levites did. If you're unwilling to point out a pattern of sin that you see in a fellow brother or sister in Christ, You might ask if you share the same zeal for the honor of the Lord's name as Moses and the Levites. Brothers and sisters, are you more zealous for your own reputation, for your own comfort? Are you more zealous for the glory of the name of the Lord? Friends, the church is a people who have been transformed by God's Spirit into a people who are no longer zealous for themselves who no longer live to just please themselves, but they're transformed into a people who are zealous for the name of the Lord. Moses acted to protect the glory of the name of the Lord because he was a man who was zealous for the name of the Lord. Friends, we should be too. And fourth and finally, I want you to see that Moses went before the Lord and pled that the Lord would preserve the people's name before him. Look with me at at verse 30. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So the Lord relented from the disaster that he had threatened Israel with but the sin of the people still needed to be atoned for. The covenant relationship between God and his people still needed to be restored and renewed. A fellowship was still hindered. So Moses went before the Lord and pled for the people's forgiveness. In fact, he did more than that. He offered himself in the place of the people. He wa- offered that he be wiped out of the Lord's book of life if that would preserve the people's name before the Lord in his book of life. But the Lord refused Moses' request. We will see in the sermon next week that the Lord eventually does restore the people, but he refused Moses' request here. Instead, he said that each person would be accountable for their own sin on the day that God settles accounts, on the day of final judgment. And in fact, in verse 35, we see that the Lord sent a plague among the people as a form of judgment That was a warning of a greater judgment to come if they did not repent. A church, God did not accept Moses' offer to be a substitute sacrifice on behalf of the people here because Moses was insufficient for the task. Moses could not serve as a substitute sacrifice for the people because he too was a sinner. And therefore, he could not bear the sins of the people on himself. Moses himself needed his sins atoned for. The people needed a greater mediator, a perfect substitute. Friends, Jesus is that greater and perfect mediator. He came to do what Moses could not do, to to serve as a substitute sacrifice for all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. We'll see next week that though God restores the people of Israel, he never accepts Moses' offer to stand in place of his people, He shows mercy and chooses to pass over their sin until Jesus, the greater mediator, the Redeemer, would come. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, well, know that on the day of God's final judgment, you will be held accountable for your sins unless you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. But friends, the the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to this earth to offer mercy and forgiveness to all who would follow him. Like Moses, Jesus identified himself with his, his people. He came to be one of us, to live as one of us, to take on human flesh. God himself took on human flesh and became man. And he did this so he could stand in our place. So that he could serve as our substitute sacrifice. In a much greater way than Moses did, Jesus identified himself with his people. He has such great love for us. But unlike Moses, Jesus committed no sin. Therefore, he was qualified in every way to serve as our substitute sacrifice on the cross. So Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin." For us, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Well, friends, on the cross, Jesus put Himself in the in the place of of guilty sinners. But Jesus did not just die for us; He was raised three days later, so that we could have eternal life in Him. Therefore, all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will have their names, and have had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they will never, ever. Be erased. They will never be erased because Jesus has now been exalted back to the right hand of the Father, where he always lives to make intercession for us. My friends, no accusation of the enemy can stand because there is Jesus pleading mercy on your behalf for each and every one of your failings. And one day, Jesus has promised that he will return to call us, his people, home to glory. But until that day, Jesus is calling a people to himself and he's transforming them to be a people. He's transforming them into a people who are no longer zealous for their own good, but who are zealous for his glory. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is at work building his church, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people who are zealous for his name. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has redeemed you by his blood. Is he not worthy of all your praise and your honor and your devotion? Therefore, as his people, go forth and proclaim the goodness and the glory of his name to a lost and dying world. A people who are going to one day have to give an account of their sins before God unless they hear about Jesus and turn and repent and believe. Friends, go forth and be zealous not for your glory or your own name or your own pleasure. But go forth and be zealous for the name of the one who loved you and died for you and ever lives to plead for you. Be zealous for his name. Let's pray.